Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Kick out the jams, motherfuckers. This is Wayne Kramer from the MC5, and you're listening to Rock and Roll Archaeology. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. When two tribes go to war, one is all that you can score, diggers. So says the rock and roll archaeologists. Okay. Hey, hey, my friends. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs in Rock. Getting close to the big holidays. I will be celebrating each and every one of them with you all. Of course, like all of us above the age of 12... I have a love-hate relationship with this season. While I appreciate the sentiment and the chance to eat, drink, and be merry with all my peeps, I dislike the commercialization and expectations that also come with this time of year. And I I know I'm not alone. (laughs) In the end, I think it's perhaps the fact that we spend so much time on the extraneous aspects that we tend to forget about the sentiment of the season. So, there, that is my war on Christmas. Well, not so much a war as a lament. Uh, I'm not against anything other than spending a ton of money, uh, just because I'm nudged to do so, and that it is blanketed as having more meaning than if I just buy a present at any other time of the year. And I detest the idea that our GDP is dependent on how much we buy between the end of Thanksgiving and the beginning of the new year. Oh, 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 I rant. Therefore, I am. Okay. Okay. Hey, guess what? We have another new podcast for all of you to check out. Goldmine Magazine is the leading resource for the record collector who collects new and vintage vinyl records, music memorabilia, posters, and discographies. Goldmine, established in September of 1974 by Brian Bucantis, created an American magazine that focuses on the collector's market for records, tapes, CDs, and music-related memorabilia. Each issue features new articles, interviews, discographies, histories, current reviews on recording stars of the past and present. Discographies are included listing all known releases. 
Coverage includes rock, blues, country, folk, and classical. Well, now they have a podcast, appropriately enough, called the Goldmine Magazine Podcast. And it is now on the Pantheon Podcast Network. We could not be more pleased. Hosted by Patrick Prince, who is also the editor of Goldmine, he's had the pleasure to interview many music luminaries already, including Art Garfunkel, Susie Quattro, Dee Snyder, Mike Portnoy, Graham Nash, and most recently, the first episode on the network, Rob Halford. He also talks to authors and critics like uh, Robert Criscow and our very own Martin Popoff, as well as spends episodes on events like uh, Record Store Day and the like. Please take a good long listen to Patrick and the Goldmine Magazine podcast and let us know what you think, diggers. Okay, let's get to today's guest. Well, if you want it, honesty, that's all you have to say. I never want to let you down or have you go It's better off this way For all the dirty looks The photographs your boyfriend took Remember when you broke your foot From jumping out the second floor I'm not okay I'm not okay I'm not okay That was a song that exploded onto the airwaves back in 2004 and, at least to my ears and my memory, pushed an underground subgenre called emo into the mainstream. Emo, and I confess folks, this is not my strong suit here in the Rock and Roll Academy. Emo, to me, strongly recalls uh, the original glam glitter scene uh, back in the early 1970s, uh, mostly in the, the UK. Um, and that was basically, of course, my introduction to rock and roll. As most know, I'm a huge Bowie fan from the word go. That's my hero. So that's where it all started for me. Like glam, emo boiled up from an underground scene, uh, again, mainstream success for a brief moment but kind of died quickly, and it retained a smallish but fiercely loyal following. So, and, and this is yet another parallel with the glam glitter rock movement, uh, emo didn't really get the acknowledgement and respect until somewhat after the fact. And truthfully, I'm kind of sorry I mostly missed it. I'm kind of experiencing the emo movement in hindsight. But hey, better late than never. And I found a great teacher, someone who really showed this rocker what it was all about. And I'm going to share that discovery with you. With me today is the music writer, Taylor Markarian, who experienced the emo wave of the early 2000s firsthand as a teenage fan, while struggling with uh, her own mental health issues as well as the typical growing pains of adolescence, Taylor found a home in indie, emo, screamo, and eventually heavier genres like metal and hardcore. Taylor Markarian started writing about music at Emerson College in Boston. In 2014, she went to L.A., where she interned at punk icon Brett Gerwitz, you know, a bad religion fame, his record label, Epitaph Records. 
She went back to Emerson in 2015 and finished up her BA in writing, literature, and publishing with a minor in music appreciation. She's written for many print and online publications, uh, including Alternative Press, Kerrang!, Revolver, Loudwire, and Reader's Digest. Markarian was born in New York City, but was raised and currently resides in New Jersey. And now she has written her first book, From the Basement, The History of Emo Music and How It Changed Society. I think it's fair to call From the Basement um, the first draft of history for the emo movement in pop and rock music. Taylor's book is colored by her personal experiences growing up with many of these bands in the New York City, New Jersey area. Uh, something I took away from the book, um, emo bands stay low to the ground and connected to the actual fans who support them. It's really cool, and it's a defining characteristic of the genre. Emo was, and still is a scene uh, where the fans and the bands really do interact. Emo rockers, by and large, make themselves accessible to their audience. And again, I think that is something to really admire and like about emo. From the Basement uh, is part history lesson, uh, part interview, part oral history. It's raw, passionate, confessional, like emo music itself. So, let's dig in and talk about possibly the last name genre in the history of guitar-driven rock and roll. Time to chat with Taylor Markarian. Is it what the can you even hear me? Starting with your spot that I'm in. Not enough to feed the hungry. I'm tired and I felt it for a while now. This seems lonely. The taste of ink is getting old. It's four o'clock in a fucking morning. It's day gets more like the last day. Stay like a sea coming. Walk steady in the river drowning. This could be my chance to break. Welcome to Deeper Digs in Rock, Taylor Markarian. How are you doing today? I'm great. Glad to be on the phone. How are you? I'm fantastic. Yeah, a little coast to coast here. We're out in San Francisco. I think you're over on the other coast, the East Coast, uh, out in out in the wilds of New Jersey, right? <laughs> yep, deep in the jungle. <laughs> deep in the jungle. So now, uh, the first question, it, it seems our discussion and your new book are rather timely as we discuss, uh, you know, what's called the emo or screamo genre uh, in that perhaps the biggest band to come out of that uh, just announced that after five years they are returning. So how excited are you and the fans? Uh, well, the fans totally broke the Internet the other day. Yes, the they did, didn't they? Right. Totally excited. I would be more excited if they had announced that their first show was in New Jersey or New York, to be honest, because that's where they're from, yeah, and yeah. that's where I am, but they're playing uh, LA In Los first. Angeles at the Shrine. Yeah, now, so, yeah, why do you think they picked that? Um, I think 
at least Gerard lives out there now, and it probably just makes most sense from a publicity perspective. But okay. um, all right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, he's been working in uh, television. I think uh, he had uh, one of his comic books, uh, The Umbrella Academy, made into a Netflix series this year, right? Yep, yep, it did. And um, it's it's just really nuts that my book happened to come out at the same time or around the same time that, you know, like you said, one of the biggest bands just announced their comeback and it was totally unexpected. Yeah, it's... um. Uh, well, I, I, you were in the zeitgeist, and and I, and I think you know you you do make a point in the book, and we'll get into this later. But uh, there seems to be a bit of a comeback, just in general. I, I think you were feeling that as uh, as you were writing this, and and I got that from some of the interviews uh, that uh, you conducted. That that you know maybe maybe this that maybe it isn't gone forever. That maybe it is it, it does seem to be coming back a little bit, huh? Yeah, you know, honestly, when I started writing the book, I felt like it wasn't, but when it was, I, at, it, it was at its nadir, right? Yeah. So when I started writing the book and doing these interviews, um, other people surprised me with their kind of optimism at the future of it, and um, opened my eyes in a in a way that you know I didn't think emo was going very far either anymore. Um, but like you said, all of these big emo bands are coming back doing their, you know, 20 year anniversary tours, which is making me feel old. <laughs> um, and, you know, with the My Chem thing, everybody just seems to be kind of riding a new high on on the genre. So we'll see where that goes. Well, actually, emo wasn't uh, in the cultural consciousness uh, or zeitgeist uh, by itself last week. Um, Saturday Night Live had a skit starring uh, Kristen Stewart, uh, that kind of mimicked, uh, uh, you know, an emo, you know, band of the youngsters at corporate America having to grow up and, uh, you know, uh, you know, work their way into management, uh, themselves. Uh, I, I know you didn't get a chance to see it because I, I, I actually clued you in on that, but, but there you go to two events in a week that say, Hmm, maybe there's something to this. Yeah, I mean, I can't say I know everything. It seems like the pot is stirring a little bit, so I'm excited to see what comes of it. Yeah, I bet. I bet. All right, so tell us about yourself, your your interest in music um, and emo music in particular, and your professional uh, life. Um, well, I first started becoming interested in the emo slash screamo genre of music when I was about 13, which I also – that's how I open up the book um, – I, I started talking about growing up in New Jersey and what an impact that had on me and introducing me to these bands. Um, and that was really, as you say, ground zero for um, this movement, if you'd like to call it that. Um, and from there, you know, my passion for that music just carried me through um to this very moment, really. I mean, I went to school and I went to Emerson College where I majored in writing and literature with a minor in uh, in music appreciation. So um, from there on, I was just like, well, I like music. I like to write. So I'm going to write about music. So I started, um, you know, doing some freelance journalism for publications like Alternative Press and Revolver and Kerrang! and Loudwire and all, all that good stuff. 
Mm-hmm. And I think you worked for Epitaph Records, too, uh, Brett Gurowitz's uh, place out in L.A. Yes, I did. I did an internship there under the press department when I was in my last year of school. Oh, very nice. Very nice. So you have just basically made a career out of uh, your love of music, like like the rest of us. Yeah. Um, you know, I never wanted to be someone who was caught up in a job that they hated. Um, even as a little kid, you know, seeing um, parents come home and, you know, talk about how much they hated their jobs, like, that's where you are all day. So why do you, why would you choose <laughs> something that you hate? So, you know, I was always determined to make something out of my love for this kind of music. Um, yeah, uh, that's, that's probably a better way to live. And, and I've noticed that, you know, you're, you're under 30, right? I'm 26. Yeah. So the, your generation seems to be, you know, looking deeply at that, uh, and, you know, trying to figure out maybe, maybe there's a better way, uh, to live than, you know, the, the corporate culture of, um, you know, the last century, huh? Yeah, it's definitely changing. Um, people talk about the side hustle a lot, um, which, you know, is, is kind of a term to describe, um, new workers and millennials like myself who, um, you know, they have their day job, but then they do freelance gigs or side gigs for the stuff that they really love and hope that it gets them somewhere. And I happened to get somewhere. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you did. You did. And and now you've been able to uh, to publish a book. So uh, your dreams are becoming reality. Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty unreal, but we'll see where that goes. Of course. Of course. OK, so now near, near the end of the book, you tell us about why this music spoke to you and how it arrived uh, right about the time that you needed it most. Uh, it, it's a brave story. And, and since I fully agree that sunlight's the best disinfected, um, I appreciate your willingness, um, like your heroes, uh, to write about your real feelings. So can you talk a little bit about your personal experience and, and, and how you found your tribe? Yeah. Um, so in the book, I discuss this genre's um, influence on and relationship with um, mental health and things like depression and anxiety and suicidal thoughts and behavior. And, um, you know, not to put it on a pedestal, but as something that really needs to be focused on and discussed in popular culture. And I think that emo was really that catalyst and people don't give it credit for that. But emo seemed to me to be that artistic catalyst for people to say, you know, like in that famous My Chem song, I'm not okay. And um, to me, it was a place where I could turn to and hear people saying the same kind of things in their songs that I felt inside, but couldn't say out loud. And for me, um, you know, I was not only a depressed individual, but um, I did self-harm and I don't do that anymore, but it was a big part of my life. And it's still something that even as we talk about depression and anxiety in popular culture and in mainstream media today, self-harm is still something that largely gets ignored or is still treated as, as taboo and people don't understand it, which is why, um, I, I always kind of wanted to tell my own personal story with that. And even though it's hard, I'm glad I, I did do that with this book. 
Yeah, I am too. Uh, um, you know, uh, like I said, sunlight's the best disinfectant. So the more we talk about this, the more normalized it becomes, the more acceptance, the more people can get help <clears throat> without resorting to drastic means. Uh, you know, I, I just think that uh, the more that we can normalize this, not saying that that state of mind should be normal, but at least the cry out for help, the and and that help should be given when that occurs. And I'm sure you agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that a lot of people are either prejudiced against it and biased against people who do that kind of thing because they have no idea what it is and why someone would do that. And I think that a lot of people who may be in the position to help don't have the tools or understanding to deal with that. Like in my circumstance, as you will read in the book, um, you know, I was kind of attacked by my guidance counselor in middle yeah. school yeah. Um, for self-harming. And that is absolutely the last thing you want to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> you don't want to come, you know, with accusations and, you know, mean things to say to someone who's truly hurting and vulnerable and needs help. Yeah, there's a reason for it, and uh, you know it needs to delicately, delicately, be figured out, uh, and you know, and and to you know try to help that person refrain and maybe you know get back into a, a better state of being, right? Absolutely. So, can I have you explain the organization to write love on her arms for us? Sure. Um, well, my, my friend Jamie launched it. Um, you can read all about it if you just quickly search it on Google. Um, they have a whole website and they actually delve into their full story about why Jamie and, um, you know, like-minded people wanted to start an organization where people could find outlets to help them deal with um, mental health issues because, um, you know, there's a really moving story that he wrote about this girl that he had met who had had a lot of different problems. Um, and one of them was self-harm and it was his experience in in dealing with that and seeing her and her emotions and her pain and the things that she went through, um, that made him really want to create a place where people like her and like myself could turn to to see what their options are. Mm. So you can go to to write love on her arms and um, all these different kinds of places now. Um, but that one was kind of the first and um, biggest one to come out of or come out side by side with the emo movement. Um, you can turn to these places and they'll give you resources. Um, locally, nationally, you know, things that can help you get through a tough time. Right, right. A little bit, a little more um, uh, focused than, say, like um, suicide prevention, right? Yeah. So, I mean, when we talk about suicide prevention, um, to me, that kind of term doesn't really get to the heart of the matter. Um, it's more like just connecting on a human level, you know, person to person. It's not necessarily, you know, something that you, you call a hotline and you get a band aid and you know, everything's yeah. good to go. Um, 
there's a lot more work that goes into it than that. And this organization uh, <clears throat> takes it a step further then is what you're saying. Yes, they do. And I know just as a fan uh, going to Warp Tour for many years, I would always see their tent there. They were always, you know, um, giving out bracelets, like taking donations and like talking to people, educating them about depression and mental health and these kinds of things. So they're always active. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people might say, well, you know, I mean, these are you know, people who have problems and I don't have problems and uh, and I don't really need to concern myself with that. And, uh, you know, I, I just think that uh, modern life and, and, and its uh, machinations uh, and uh, uh, its structure um, lends itself to uh, these issues uh, that become more prominent, especially with younger uh, people. And uh, there needs to be um, some outlets to uh, to alleviate at, at least alleviate some of the situation, if not uh, uh, remove it uh, entirely. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if we could get to that uh, without you know huge structural change. But an organization like to write love on her arms is certainly a, a great step forward. Right, and you actually bring up um, a good point that I would love to discuss further. Um, that people who don't necessarily have these quote unquote problems, um, they don't understand and they don't try to understand people who do have them. So, um, that's actually a core reason I think as to why the emo genre in the first place became, um, something that was, you know, mocked at the same time that, um, it was promoted, um, because, you know, there, there was a very, I'm an insider, you're an outsider mentality. Mm, um, yeah. and I think, you know, we can see that t today in all manifestations of our society in all aspects. I mean, you look at politics, I mean, emo has nothing to do with politics, but you look at the political sphere today and you look at the country today. And I think everybody could agree that the main reason that we're such a divided country is that people aren't willing to have open conversations and understand one another. No, um, it tends to be that those without, um, you know, a particular problem want to treat the those who have that as some sort of contagion. Uh, right. And, and therefore they they want to, you know, get away from it as quickly as possible, as opposed to facing it and trying to do something about it. Right. And um Emo music makes you face everything. Emo music yeah, is literally in your face. Yeah. Emo music is uncomfortable for a lot of people to listen to for that very reason. Mm -hmm. So how did you put the book together and, and how long have you been working on it? Um, I mean, speaking of timing, <laughs> it really kind of like you're, you're going to tell me since you were 13, right? <laughs> no. <laughs> um, so. About a year or so ago, I was thinking to myself, uh, you know, nobody's really written uh, a book about this, an oral history about this. And I had I had read, um, you know, uh, American Hardcore um, by Stephen Blush. I had read um, uh, an oral history of punk rock, Please Kill Me. Oh, um, Legs McNeil, by, yeah. Yeah, Legs McNeil. Mm. And I was thinking about those kinds of books and how nobody had done that for emo yet. 
then I kind of, you know, I, I shelved that idea for a while going about my daily grind. And then out of nowhere, one day, um, someone from mango publishing reached out to me. Um, apparently they had, they'd stalked my writing on the internet long enough to think <laughs> that they liked me. And, um, they proposed, you know, would you want to be the person to write a book about email and like indie and stuff like that? And it was just this weird cosmic timing where, you know, out of the blue, someone came and asked me if I wanted to write the thing that I initially set out to write. So, you know, it gave me the kick in the ass to do what I needed to do. And, um, I think about a year it took me. Okay. All right. All right. And, and you conducted a lot of interviews uh, along the way. Yeah. Um, you know, being a music journalist for, for years, um, provided me with a lot of great connections. You know, some of these people I had already talked to them before. Right. Um, but you know, I, all I had to really do was reach out to friends and someone knew somebody else and it was very organic. All right, so let's get into your book. It seems in, in some ways the emo genre kind of grew up alongside the Internet by both being born out of the the 90s. Yeah, so, um, you know, you have this new youth punk rock movement that someone is going to call emo, and then you have the Internet coming out, and it's like very primitive form um, at the same time. Mm. And so... You have teenagers, these angsty teenagers who are looking to get their voice out, and then you have um, an internet connection where you find message boards and people with similar thoughts and feelings to you, and um, you know those things come together for something truly phenomenal. Yeah, because you know prior generations, you know, uh, had to search high and low to uh, find um, you know the 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 new thing, if you will. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, let, let's take the punk movement for example, of which I'm pretty familiar with and grew up with. Um, you know, the, there were fanzines, and and literally, you know, you either wrote to somebody and they sent you one in the mail, or you know, the bands that came through town uh, left a couple of zines that you then gave them other copies, and uh, you know, it, it was uh, it was like um, you know, uh, traveling by stagecoach, if you will, and now. You know, you guys in this uh, 90s era have this new tool, which is, you know, instantaneous. You can uh, uh, share information with, right? Yeah. Um, at first, the emo music genre or movement, however you want to say it, um, you know, it was very much like that 70s punk uh, DIY yeah. vibe where, you know, the people would know other bands simply by going to different houses in New Jersey <laughs> where they would, where they would host these, you know, house shows or basement shows and same thing in, in New York and parts of Long Island. And, um, word of mouth was really initially the way that it gained its strength. And then it just skyrocketed beyond belief when the internet came full bloom. Yeah. So uh, now uh, uh, to use a, 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 a little bit of a quote from uh, one of your uh, one of your interviewees uh, in the book, Arose by Any Other Name, I have to ask you to give me the expert's definition on what stands as a quote unquote emo band. <laughs> 
Um, well, in the introduction, I actually say what I think represents an emo band. And it is funny because there were a few people who the, I interviewed and their interviews are in the, in that book, um, that say that they don't understand what emo means, even if they're part of an emo band, because to them, they've heard so many different bands described as emo, but, um, you know, sonically there's, I think the vocal is very unique and it's, it's not a, a quality vocal, you know, but it's not exactly a, a, a generic punk vocal either. You know, it's not just angry. It's something that's, um, desperate and something that's a little bit more vulnerable at the same time that it's being aggressive. Mm. And, um, musically it was, it was typically pretty minimalistic. Um, but it could be really slow songs. It could be really fast songs. Um, but you know, it really did come out of what Adam Lazara called, uh, teenage poetry in, in one of his, uh, take, early taking back Sunday songs. He talks about, um, you know, bad teenage poetry. And to me, that's like a, the perfect way to describe emo music. Yeah, so it, it's definitely more melodic than punk, uh, and it's expressing inner feelings lyrically, uh, and then performing uh, a range of emotions um, uh, as opposed to you know strictly anger, anger or you know fuck the man and you know society sucks and all that, uh, which you get a lot in the punk side of things. Um, so there's there there's far more feeling in in the lyrics and in the performance of. Uh, while the band itself, but you get that a lot from the vocalist, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the vocalist is literally the mouthpiece for the entire band. And, um, you see it not just in emo and screamer music, you see it in hardcore music too. If you were to go to a hardcore show, um, the vocalist jumps right in there with the fans, you know, they're, they understand that, they really aren't any different than the people that they're singing to. The only difference is that they have a mic. So they're, um, they're really breaking the fourth wall here. Oh yeah, totally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, <clears throat> so uh, let's set the stage for this new kind of sound that's growing out of the nineties punk scene. So how does it begin? I, I, I think like sunny day, real estate, taking back Sunday, rights of spring, Jimmy world. Is that, is that, that put me in the right world here? Yep. <laughs> You're right in there. So did it start with, I, I think, uh, rights of spring is actually starts in the eighties. Isn't that right? Yeah. So, um, a lot of people, when I was, uh, doing interviews for this book, a lot of the subjects, um, that were part of these big emo and screamo bands in the, in the late nineties and early two thousands, they cited, um, Ian MacKay and his bands, um, you know, minor threat embrace yeah, Fugazi. Then Fugazi. Yeah. And, um, as a main influence and rights of spring was right there too, next to Fugazi. And, um, it's interesting because not a lot of people would suspect that, um, a genre like this, which takes so much flack for being, you know, feminine or vulnerable or, you know, something like that, um, would stem out of hardcore and not just hardcore but 
political DC hardcore with Ian McKay, who's like one of the biggest legends you'll find in that genre. So, oh, yeah. um, and you know, he, he was even confused when I asked him to interview for it. He had no idea how he was related to the emo genre, but, um, you know, everybody else that I talked to were like, yeah, he's the granddaddy of emo. So, um, it seems to, it was this kind of thing that I found out where it came from just by talking to different people who they themselves weren't sure where it came from. You know, you find the truth within, within the different, um, stories so yeah i mean sure we could go back and 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 pick uh various influencers uh you know the cure comes to mind uh an introspective uh, artist robert smith uh and uh and the fact of taking an aggressive very aggressive uh form of rock and roll uh punk and then you know giving it some subtleties some shades of gray and then adding in um, you know, these delicate topics, as we discussed uh, here a few minutes ago, uh, that shouldn't be, but definitely at that time were taboo to be discussed uh, openly. And and therefore, I think you you also then have a target on your back of uh, for those that embrace that, that, you know, oh, well, you know, you're like you enjoy this these dark desperate feelings and therefore you gravitate towards entertainment that uh that fuels that and i don't think that's the case here i think you're you're seeing more of a self-help almost a a medication uh by what the bands are providing and what the audience is is giving back because as we know there's there's a feedback loop that goes on uh between an artist and the audience uh in a in a public performance right yeah and You know, it's not just me. There are so many people. You can easily find it on internet forums or if you just talk to someone who enjoys this music. A lot of people say, this music saved my life or this band saved my life, especially with, um, you know, we're talking earlier, My Chemical Romance. I can't tell you how many people there are out there that say that My Chemical Romance saved them. And, um, you know, it's it's a debated thing to say some people say that well nothing else can save you you save yourself which is is somewhat true but um you know yeah but people... you're still taking in uh, uh um, you know stimulus uh yeah that 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 you know re- you reflect on and uh you know you you then you know make a decision either through door a or through door b and if if the the stimulus is a positive one uh, regardless of how it's presented, then that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. So um, I think almost everyone who has participated in uh, an emo show or has been in a band or who has, you know, done anything in that sphere, um, they will be able to tell you about how much it positively impacted them, which will surprise a lot of people who aren't familiar with it because it seems so negative. Yeah, from an outsider, um, uh, you know, uh, but that that's that's happened numerous times uh, uh, through the history of rock and roll. There's there's always inevitably some backlash. I mean, you know, remember the you know John Lennon famously you know 
you know, put into a, an interview that the Beatles at that moment happened to be, you know, bigger than Jesus. He he wasn't comparing himself to Jesus, but, you know, evangelicals in America didn't take it that way. And they all pointed the finger and said, oh, you know, you're awful and horrible, and, <laughs> you know, so without understanding the delicacy of what what Lennon was trying to say. And the same thing could be said about this music. I mean, from an outsider's perspective, yeah, it all seems dark and depressing. And, uh, you know, why do I want to make myself even more? more depressed than I already am. But that's not really what you get when you, you know, uh, uh, delve deeper into uh, into this genre, right? Right. Um, what you find instead is common ground with somebody. You find common ground with a stranger through yeah. Yeah. The, their sounds and their lyrics. And, you know, at the end of the day, just having them say something to you through your headphones could save your life and that's what happened with me yeah it it's 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 the 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 music itself the lyrical content but it's also uh the aesthetic uh the camaraderie uh the social nature of it i mean th this has uh, been going on since uh you know the who and the mods uh, in 1965, um, you know, every generation finds its unique uh, sort of uh, way of existence that wants to get out of the real world uh, as they find themselves in. And uh, they invent this thing to, to help them get from point A to point B. Yeah. And, um, you know, it was interesting that you brought up religion because in some ways, um, it is very much like a religion, you know, it's, it's something that, like you said, brings people together and something that exists outside themselves as well as inside themselves that they can devote themselves to. Like I personally, um, am an atheist, so I don't go to church. I don't do any of those things, but to me, music, particularly emo music, felt like my church going to those shows felt like going to church. That was the only God that I needed, um, because that was the thing that gave me solace when I needed it. Yeah, uh, uh, it's been said many times, uh, and 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 you know the music, and especially this uh, emotionally free music we call rock and roll, and it all be rolled into what is called the rock and roll age as we find ourselves a couple hundred years in the future, uh, <laughs> that, uh, you know, it, it, it provided uh, some of the same um, um, uh, symbolic and cultural uh, references that um, say, uh, you know, a, a church religion, religious experience uh, would be I, I I know I've had plenty of religious experiences uh, uh, in in rock and roll and I'm sure you have as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I talked to William Goldsmith from Sunny Day Real Estate, who's also the drummer for uh, Foo Fighters for a bit, um, he he said that it was a spiritual moment when he got um, an encore for the first time, you know, people wanted Sunny Day Real Estate to come back out on stage. He said that was a very spiritual moment that he'd never experienced. And it's that kind of moment that we cling to whenever we go to a show like that. Right, right. 
So you know, as we we kind of there's a, a theme and a thread beginning to 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 uh, uh, expose itself here, and that's that's the mental health side of things seems to be, uh, you know, an opportunity for the artist uh, in this world to express some of this hopelessness that's commonly found in teens uh, who aren't in the let us say popular circles, and therefore these artists are speaking for their audience, right? Right, because. They are their audience, you know, they identify with each other. Um, Not to say that every person who listens and likes emo music and makes emo music is that way. Um, I know plenty of people who've never had a problem with depression, but love this kind of music. Mm -hmm. Um, So at the same time, it's about keeping an open mind to those, those experiences that other people might be going through. Um, And even within the same band, you know, when I talk to, uh, Garrett from Senses Fail, who was the guitarist and founding member and did a lot of the songwriting on the musical end of it, the, you know, instrumental end of it. Um, he said he never dealt with depression or anxiety or anything like that. But famously, Buddy Nielsen, who is the vocalist and lyricist for Senses Fail, is, you know, deeply entrenched in things like addictive behavior and alcoholism and, you know, depression, all those kinds of things. So even within the same band, you have two different life experiences, but it works. Yeah. Yeah. Now, uh, the, 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 the thing about the, the, the emo genre is the, you know, you know, wearing this on your, on your shirt sleeve here, your, you are, uh, you know, writing about, um, you know, what is, as we've discussed, a kind of a taboo subject, uh, uh, maybe less so today. And, and maybe some of that's because of, you know, this ex- this music being uh, uh, an exposure uh, to to the world. But, you know, before it, that kind of was not really something that uh, most rock and roll artists uh, delved into. Right. Right, but I would always like to say that rock music and punk music of of any type is always protesting or challenging something. And, you know, in 70s punk, they were challenging status quo, um, you know, social political issues, things like that. In emo music, they're, whether this was their intention or not, they're challenging the notion that you can't talk about these types of things. So their middle finger to the world wasn't, you know, um, oh, fuck again, the man. It yeah, was, it, it, was, it was, I got problems and you're going to know about it. Yeah, exactly. When right. everybody wanted to pretend like there are no problems. Right, 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 right. All right. So I, I, I think it's fair to say that ground zero geographically was the New York, New Jersey area with bands like My Chem, uh, Taking Back Sunday, um, and also a few other American geographies that you get into. But my question is, is interestingly, there's not a British version. Why, why do you think that is? Um, I think like every genre of music, there's always some international take on it there's always a different culture that you know has their own underground but um the same way that um you know rock and roll kind of became part of the american identity even though you know the beatles were from the uk um and the rolling stones um there became a certain brand of american rock and um even with punk, there was this whole debate of, you know, was 
real punk in the UK or was real punk in New York city? Um, <laughs> which yeah. I, you know, you can, I can watch SLC punk, the movie, you know, any day of the week, it's definitely recommended. Um, but, um, with emo music, I don't know. It just, it's not like it didn't cross over internationally because there, there were a lot of fans internationally, but there was, there was something about this time and place that was very conducive to this kind of music. Yeah. I wonder if maybe, you know, look, you know, Americans, uh, are, uh, rather uncouth, uh, and, uh, you know, are, are more than willing to, uh, stand on a street corner and, and, you know, uh, be rude and obnoxious and, uh, and express themselves, uh, maybe in a freer way than other cultures, uh, are. And, and, you know, this, this like we, we, we stated, you know, we're, we're, you know, a lot of the lyrical content is of this, you know, a, a taboo subject that is not meant to be discussed in polite society and here these guys and and let's face it it is mostly guys are out there you know screaming it in your face on record and live and that may not translate to maybe some other cultures that um you know uh, interact differently yeah, definitely. Um, we're absolutely nowhere near as polite as probably anybody <laughs> in the world. Um, <laughs> if you've done any international travel, yes, you find that common, don't you? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I regret sometimes having to say that I'm an American, and I'm like, no, 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 no not like that. Not, like not that, that kind of American. No, yeah. no, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I definitely agree with you. Yeah, it's just interesting that there was not a British version. I never, I, you know, I, you know, I mean, you know, if it comes out of the '90s, you have the Britpop, Britpop scene in the in England, you know, taking fruit uh, there, um, uh, you know. But you know, in the 2000s, it's funny there wasn't, you know, some sort of British band that kind of fit in uh, with uh, some of the bands that we've already discussed today. And it just, I don't know, it just never really happened. I, thought, I just found that as I read through your book, you know, I, I kept thinking, oh, I'm missing something. Uh, and she's going to expose this thing that I was unaware of. And, and, the, you know, I, after reading the book, went looking myself and it's just, it's just not there. So, but um, well, I think also it's easier to understand if you also think about hardcore, hardcore is a very American genre you'll very find true yeah that new also york... is primarily american and you don't see a lot of that in britain right new york hardcore is its own staple of things mm -hmm. um you know the la hardcore mm -hmm. they have you know all these different brands but they're very centralized in a particular location and that is because um there's a sense of community that you draw from this music from hardcore, from emo, there's a sense of local community that is very important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, as you discovered yourself, uh, growing up in New Jersey, you know, you gravitated to these local bands, and and you rode the ride with them from underground to whatever success they achieved, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, all right. So, you know, uh, you you brought this up, and you bring it up in the book, and some of your uh, uh, your interviewees bring it up. 
And you know, I, I, again, it's it's. I'm trying to find this key here. You 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 you've opened this door for me, and I'm I'm kind of <laughs> now now I, I'm I'm in this room that I'm a little unfamiliar with. I mean, some of it's you know uh, you know I, I see some commonalities, and uh, you know I I think I would fit in uh, okay, but um, but it's 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 a little uh, unusual and unique for me. And so what I found was, uh, you know, this this interesting piece where. You know, why do you think so many bands refuse to embrace the label of being emo? Um, <laughs> you know, I like Thomas Mullins' quote that, um, you know, emo's both revered and hated at the same time. And and I was like, oh, that's really interesting. So I, I, I'm trying to square that circle, if you will. <laughs> well, I, uh, I dedicate at least an entire chapter to that in the book. Um, I think you would have a hard time getting an answer to that question just asking the bands themselves. I mean, I did. I had a difficult time getting some people to claim it as something positive and that's something that's their own. And, you know, you know, it's just, it's juxtaposed with this notion that getting called emo is a term used by outsiders to kind of make fun of you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, but, same... but but isn't punk? I mean, you know, the 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 origination of the word punk is you know a bottom in a British prison. You know, that's the you know a homosexual in a in 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 a British prison is where the term punk comes from. But unlike emo, you know, the punkers at first were like, oh fuck that, I'm not that, and then they were like, well fuck you, it's mine, I own it. So now mm -hmm. now punk means what I want it to mean, and I found it interesting that the emo guys. They, they, they never really it doesn't seem like they ever really I mean I, I'd say they do now but at the at its moment as it's as it's happening they, they don't it's it's like they want to run away from the term even though you know I, I I just feel like they should own it right I agree they should own it but um I think why a lot of people still don't is because like the music, itself um it's it's very complex and multi-dimensional so you don't have this one simple straightforward um okay i'm a punk so fuck you it's um it's it's more complex than that because you have all these different kinds of layered emotions in there so when trying to classify it as one thing you kind of run into problems because it's not just one thing it's a lot of different types of things well, I, I also I also think that um, you know again reading from some of the interview uh, interviewees and, and and most of them are male, and and knowing that time uh, and you know growing up in a, a an American uh, male myself, you know there there's a line that you you know you're not allowed to cross which exposes your emotionalism and let's face it the the, the word emo itself is a, a shortening of emotional uh, or mm. emotions and. Um, uh, and that, you know, uh, while, while I think, um, uh, it, uh, uh, would, you know, greatly increase, uh, your, uh, fan bases, especially your feminine fan base, uh, there's like this, uh, I don't want to, I, I, I want to like just put my toe over it, but I don't want to just jump, uh, completely into the pool with a lot of these guys. Yeah. Um, and we talk about toxic masculinity in yeah. the book. Yeah. Um, it's a subject that organically came up when I did a lot of these interviews because like you said, um, quote unquote, boys don't cry. 
um, if, if you're a man or whatever society says a man is supposed to be, you're supposed to be tough. You're not supposed to show your emotions, but actually, no. <laughs> that makes it worse. I mean, yeah. yeah. Then you take it out on other people and things like that. Right. Um, and, you know, then you have bigger, you know, larger societal problems that come from those internal problems that are getting ignored. So um, what Emo did and what these guys so bravely talked about was that it's okay to feel the emotions that you have. Actually, it's better to feel the emotions that you have, and it doesn't make you any less of a man because of it. And in my opinion, it makes you much more of a man if you're able to face your emotions and deal with them. It makes you much more of a person. Forget man or woman. It makes you more of a person yeah. to, to deal with those things than to shy away from them and pretend like they don't exist. Yeah. Well, you know, let's 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 face it that, you know, the society, our, our American culture has changed quite drastically in the last 20 years uh, and the acceptance of, uh, you know, marginalized people uh, more and more. And, and let's hope it, you know, the, let's hope it continues uh, that way. I, I think we're in a tough spot at the moment. But, uh, you know, for the last 20 years, the arc of history has been towards justice for a lot of marginalized people, which has allowed people to open up up and express themselves more freely and it's just it's i find it interesting that this music arrives right at this time when this discussion is being had uh, by society uh, 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 in, uh in the large yeah i think it's like what you said before it's about being a feedback loop um so emo was kind of a symptom of the larger culture and the larger culture then became a symptom of emo so yeah. you you can't really um, untie that knot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, so I'm going to guess you are a Tolkien fan because you reference him when discussing the term uh, from where this music came from and the title of your book, From <laughs> the Basement. So let's discuss that. Yeah, sure. Um, nobody's actually asked me about that yet. So uh, the the phrase cellar door yeah. um, is is celebrated in the literary community um, because a lot of literary professionals like Tolkien have stated that it's the most beautiful phrase in the English language. Um, that's actually also referenced in the film Donnie Darko starring Jake Gyllenhaal. <laughs> yeah. um, and, you know, people, when they talked about it in a literary sense, um, you know, they talk about the sound of the word and, and how they go together. But to me, it's much more about the idea behind the cellar door. What do you access when you open the cellar door? What's down there? It's dark. People don't normally go there. Um, but it happens to be exactly where you find this kind of music coming from. Yeah. So no, you're not you're not. I mean, a lot of these shows were or, or these bands began, especially if you're if you're from the East Coast where basements are prominent, kind of kind of grew out of uh, uh, the the real true underground. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that you would you would literally have these shows in the you mentioned it a little bit earlier, these little house parties where you would be introduced to various bands, uh, you know, which were primarily done in these little basements. Yeah, um, it was definitely much stronger back in the day. Uh, the local scene 
was really thriving, but it, it still happens today. I mean, I myself have hosted a couple house shows, basement shows. Um, you know, my friends are in bands and they, they do their own shows at, at their friends' houses sometimes. I actually just went to a Halloween party where my friend and his band did a, a Misfits cover show. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so it's, it's still part of the culture here, just not as intensely as it was when emo first started rising. Yeah, yeah. I also got the sense that the records were one thing and meant to be listened to almost on a on a personal journey, which in the age of iPods and earbuds makes a lot of sense to me. Um, but the live shows were a completely different experience, and, and those were meant to be very social. Right. It's really interesting because there is a contrast there. And um, Yeah, which you don't music. see in, 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 in previous music genres. You know, it's very, you know, music uh, used to be, you know, hey, you get a record and you share it with your friends. And, you know, you had speakers uh, and therefore it was, you know, out in the world. But nowadays with the, you know, the advent of the, the iPod and earbuds, it's, it's a different experience, especially listening to records. Um, but the live show is still the same. It's, it's still, you know, uh, you know, like we've discussed, it's like going to church. Yeah. And um, it's an interesting point that you bring up with the earbuds because it does make for a very individualized listening experience in a genre that itself um, talks about the individual and internalized feelings. So you really... I mean, I remember walking through hallways in high school with my earbuds in and trying to block out the rest of the world and only hear this music. And um, you go to a live show and you go for a different reason. You go not just to see the band, but you go to experience that feeling of connection with a larger group of people and to know that you really are not alone in whatever you're feeling. Right. So by the time we get into the 2000s, um, you know, it's begun to formalize into uh, uh, something. I'm not sure if people were calling it emo right at the at the moment, but I think Jimmy Eat, Eats World uh, with the song The Middles, kind of like the first emo pop song, you know, the crossover, the one that kind of really solidifies this as, as something and, and, you know, probably makes uh, uh, people wake up, uh, you know, outside of the underground uh, and pay attention. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and there even are people that I interviewed for the book that, that say in there that, you know, Jimmy world might be to blame for the popularization of email, <laughs> but, um, Jimmy Eat World are absolutely crucial. Um, the middle is probably, if you ask any sincere fan, their worst fucking song. <laughs> <laughs> As is what happens to usually turn up on the radio. But it it was a very kind of mainstream way to access the deeper parts and the deeper cuts of Jimmy Eat World songs. Yeah. Okay, so by the mid-decade, it seems the genre kind of hits its stride, and uh, at the same time, it kind of uh, seems to peak rather quickly, and we'll get into that in in a bit. But let's talk about this moment that where, you know, I, I personally remember this, uh, and that's My Chemical Romance's um, I'm Not Okay showing up on MTV, and the first time I saw it, I was like, 
oh, these guys are going to be giant. Uh, and sure enough, they did become the biggest emo band. Uh, uh, I, I think I think we can all agree on that, uh, as as far as record sales and ticket sales are concerned. Um, uh, but uh, uh, you know, you you have this sort of happening, and it appears to be um, this first decade of this new century, this first sort of new genre that people can latch themselves onto. Yeah, and. Um... In my book, I line that up uh, pretty side by side with the evolution of the internet and, you know, um, the ease of access to things. Because when emo first started and it was underground, late 90s, um, the internet was like around, but it wasn't where it was a few years later, where all of a sudden, you could get information at lightning speed. Everybody was on the internet. Um, well, and you and, had things like MySpace uh, available. Yeah. yeah. MySpace, pure volume, you know, illegal downloading software, which yep. um, was, it was both good and bad for the genre because I, I think it, it made the big bands like my chem and the used and made them arena stars. You know, they would perform in arenas. Yeah. Um, but then after the exposure, then you kind of get the financial drawback of, well, everybody's downloading, downloading my free. record for free. So, <laughs> <laughs> so at the same time that it, it exploded because of the internet, it also kind of imploded because of the internet. Yeah. And, and I don't know, maybe, maybe things, you know, just move that much quicker. Um, because, uh, you know, the, the, the information can disseminate itself much quicker. The lag time, uh, disappears. Uh, a band can go from nothing to, you know, the, the top of the pop, uh, uh, you know, in a, in a matter of, of months, uh, if not weeks, uh, you know, these days. Uh, and, uh, we're just seeing the beginnings of that. And this genre is almost like the, uh, uh, the Petri dish, uh, for, uh, for all of that happening. Right. Yeah. It was, it was kind of the first road test, I think of how the internet affects music. Yeah. Good um, and bad. Yeah. 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 All right. So I, I have to ask this a little side because I, I don't know, but, uh, there appears to have been a falling out or a disagreement between two bands taking back Sunday and the brand new. So can you fill us in on that? Yes. Um, I can't get into terrible detail. Um, yeah, cause your but, book doesn't, it's, you mention it, it's there. And I was like, Hmm, there's something more here, uh, than going on. I mean, uh, and, and, and let's, let's, let's set the stage here. So, uh, you know, these two bands, uh, kind of grew up with each other. In fact, I think some of the members are childhood friends and that there was something that happened and then they started, uh, you know, putting this into their act or their shows and their records. And this became a feud, right? Yeah. Um, so the reason that it's vague, um, both in general and in the book is because the members of both bands have intentionally kept it pretty vague. Um, but, What's known in, you know, kind of public knowledge is that it had something to do with a girl. Uh, there was uh, like a, a disagreement or, you know, a kind of like 
oh, you're my friend, but you stabbed me in the back. Um, and that whole thing led to back and forths between Taking Back Sunday and Brand New, who, you know, at that point had had parted ways. And it was a pretty significant rift in the the local, you know, New York, New Jersey scene, because you kind of had to pick a side at some point. Oh, the fans themselves had to pick a side. Yeah, they, so, they so felt it was like the, they did. It was the, the, the Jets uh, and the Sharks, huh? Jets and the Giants, kind no, of. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was going with the West Side Story, uh, the, the Sharks and the Jets, to keep it musical. But uh, sure, oh. football teams will work. Well, I mean, I bring up the Jets and the Giants because they also split this area in half. <laughs> That's so. right. That is right. That is right. So, uh, so I, I take it uh, uh, the fans, uh, you know, um, bickered amongst themselves as well. Then, yeah, um, you kind of there was this kind of sense that you had to be a Taking Back Sunday fan or a brand new fan. Um, I came a little bit after that. I was a little too young at the time. Oh, so was... you didn't have to pick sides. Right. Um, I personally like Taking Back Sunday a lot better. Um, I also heard them first, but um, I can appreciate certain brand new songs. The thing I will say is that um, in recent years, it has come out that um, there are accusations against brand new vocalist and main songwriter, uh, Jesse Lacey, um, you know, sexual assault allegations. I don't know, you know, the official outcomes of those accusations, if they were ruled on in court or whatever. But, um, I do know that that has become public knowledge now. So a lot of people can't even go back and listen to brand new records in the same way. All right, another fascinating story, and and I know uh, for those any anybody you know even remotely familiar with the emo scene is knows this story, but a lot of our audience doesn't, and that is the creation of My Chemical Romance after nine eleven. Um, so for those who are unaware, can you tell their origin story? Um, so it's kind of become emo lore at this point. Um, and it's especially meaningful to people like myself who were in the area when 9-11 happened. You know, I was I was a kid um, in New Jersey, you know, going to going to school. And all of a sudden, one day, um, people's parents started showing up and taking them out of class and nobody would say anything. There were, you know, there was no explanation for what happened. And then, you know, I I heard that the twin towers had fallen. And, um, for me, that was, that was really hard because I mean, I was a little kid and my mom was stuck in New York city. She worked in New York city and, um, I had no way of contacting her and I didn't know if she was coming home or not. She finally came home at the end of the night. Um, but at the same time that that happened, um, you know, Gerard way, the vocalist for my chem, he wasn't a little kid like me. He was, he was starting his adult life. And, um, he was in the area, he was working, um, doing animation, um, in the city. Yeah. Cartoon network. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, he experienced it pretty firsthand. And, um, it was one of those moments that immediately reminds you that life is too short. 
And he turned around and did exactly what he wanted to, which was start My Chemical Romance. And the first batch of songs that came out had um, one of the singles was called uh, Skylines and Turnstiles. And it is based off of 9-11 and his personal experience, uh, yeah. personal experiences and recollections of it. Yeah. 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 I'm sure it informed Gerard Way as much as it did for any American like yourself uh, coming of age uh, on that day. Yeah, I definitely did. And I've talked to um, Buddy Nielsen before, the vocalist of Census Fail. I've talked to him for other assignments that I've done. And um, he said that he was very much influenced by that and that there was some kind of undercurrent of emotion that, you know, that event helped push. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I, I mean, for all Americans, it, it, it's a dark day. Um, but, you know, for for young people who, you know, don't have an understanding of, you know, you know, the, the, the whys and hows, um, you know, it's just, you know, a terrible event. And and the, the you know, the fear of of it continuing was very palpable uh, at the time. Um, you know, anybody who had uh, any kind of understanding of um of uh, the situation that we found ourselves in knew that that you know this was coordinated it was obviously just uh the first of what um you know our new enemy uh had hoped to be more and so the fear was palpable in in everything you did uh you know i i had to cross bridges uh and uh, myself uh you know get into high rises uh within days of uh the event and you know and and you know constantly being aware of my surroundings because uh you know who's to say that it wouldn't happen here uh and i can't imagine how difficult that would be for you know somebody of your age you know just just becoming aware of the world and now having to deal with something like this and the same thing with gerard yeah um no matter what age you are it would transform you in some way um and for him it you know he turned it into something positive which ended up being the greatest emo music ever <laughs> yeah, but um yeah, yeah yeah and which gets us probably to the peak which you know i think would be now 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 so there are some other bands that that get up into that that stratosphere, you know, I'd say Fallout Boy, The Used, uh, you know, maybe even Coheed and Cambria uh, experienced some success around this time. And and this is the latter half of the decade. But I, I think the ultimate peak, uh, you know, let, it, let us say the Led Zeppelin, uh, you know, the Beatles uh, type of thing is My Chemical Romance is the Black Parade, right? Definitely. Um, there are people who might argue you on which album <laughs> uh, it was that did it for them. Uh, personally, from the very beginning, I liked uh, Three Cheers, but Black Parade was that record that really solidified my chem, not just in their own scene, but in the mainstream, because Welcome to the Black Parade, everybody saw that music video. You know, everybody knew that song. Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. And, uh, uh, I think there were a couple of other hits that came off that album as well. Uh, and they were, you know, on their way to superstardom, 
Uh, and and then it's funny because it doesn't last very long. Uh, you know, uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that they they are coming back, and um and I do think that uh, there is this resurgence that is going on, and uh, you know you must have you know your spider senses must have uh, felt this uh, resurgence <laughs> whether you knew it or not, and you know your book is showing up in a in a very timely timely fashion here. Um, but I, I, it is, it, it's a very interesting um, piece of history that, uh, rock and roll history that I, I'm trying to figure out is, is that, you know, n normally these genres have this, eh, you know, five to 10 year arc where, uh, you know, they, they, they're ruling the, the pop chart scene. And, and uh, I, I think we're lucky if we have two or three years uh, with this where where this is you know being considered now let's face it we live in a, a world and especially in the last 20 years of a much more fragmented music scene um, which you know didn't exist in some of the previous iterations of, uh, of rock and roll um, but I do I, I, I am interested in why it you know it took a little bit to, to come that's normal uh, to get into the mainstream but once it arrives it does only for this very short period of time and then and then it kind of burns out very quickly. Yeah, and I think that's a direct result of um, illegal downloading and CD sales crashing. Yeah. Um, Again, the internet, so, right? Yeah, yeah so um, you know, if you talk to a publicist at that time or like a label head at that time, uh, they'll tell you that all of a sudden the money wasn't there. Yeah. You know, um, it wasn't sustainable in that same capacity anymore. And that was kind of the last time you really heard rock on the radio, um, at least mainstream radio channels. Um, yeah, but... the, the, the last the last uh, rock and roll album to reach number one was American Idiot in 2006. <laughs> it's been that long. I know. Yeah. So I think both of us would agree that a new format or genre of guitar-driven you know, self-contained band writing, recording, and performing their own music, it just hasn't risen to the popularity of this genre that you've written about. Um, it just, it just, that, this was it. This was the last hurrah. It was in the context of mainstream pop culture. Um, now, as you said, uh, the overarching rock umbrella is fragmented into uh, like a innumerable uh, <laughs> amounts of subgenres and things like that. So you do have these bands, these metal bands, these hardcore bands that have millions and millions of followers. You just don't hear about it on, you know, your main radio station. It's, it's different now, but um, you know, rock is definitely not dead by any means. It's just somewhere else. Yeah, as we like to say, rock's not dead. It just smells funny. Uh, it's <laughs> it's out there. And yeah, I, I, I constantly uh, uh, say that, uh, you know, there's plenty of good rock music out and certainly live these days. Uh, and the record industry has made a, a comeback. Uh, and uh, uh, there does seem to be some momentum uh, in the music uh, world, uh, which is great for, for, for everybody. But to your point... Um, it's not in the cultural zeitgeist. Uh, you know, I, I have a theory that, you know, guitar driven rock and roll is a very 20th century 
type of sound. I mean, hell, the, the electric guitar itself is a 20th century invention. It sounds like the industrial 20th century, and we don't live in that world anymore. We live in the world of computers, uh, the digital age, and uh, the computer itself is the primary instrument of, uh, of music creation today, right? Yeah, which is why you see a lot of people who were in this genre, um, they do cross over. They they cross over from this genre to electronic genres. And the best example of yeah. that is Skrillex. Skrillex yeah. 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 Um, who, if if anybody didn't know it already, Skrillex, Sonny Moore, was actually in From First to Last, which is another major name in um, emo screamo music. And he shifted and became the biggest dubstep sensation, the first real dubstep sensation, I think. Yeah. So, um, you know, these people are talented in many facets of the word, but... Um, well, everybody's got a side hustle, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, kind of getting towards the 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 end of this and seeing this, um, you know, this music fade out, uh, you know, at the end of the the aughts, uh, the the decade there. Um, you know, a, a lot of people point fingers, and 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 one of one of them, uh, as you you talk about in your book, is is the emo fashion. You know, skinny jeans, choppy bangs, studded belts, guyliner, etc. Uh, you know, but you know, I you know, I, I don't know. I mean, sure that that's one potential finger uh, that uh, uh, that you might point at, but I I tend to agree with your friend Natasha uh, Van Duzer that this was what the audience used to identify themselves and not necessarily how the bands themselves dressed. Right. Yeah. I, I agree with her take as well. Um, but I can also see the band members themselves, like their point of view um, became not that the fashion damaged the music or the quality of the music, but it distracted um, so by the time that it, it reached mainstream as it did with my chemical romance, it had evolved to something totally different than, you know, bands like mineral were, you know, mineral was, uh, an emo band that came much earlier and is vastly different in sound and appearance than my chemical romance, but there is an evolution there. Yeah. 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 It's, I don't know, uh, you know, look, all genres create these identifiers. It's, you know, it's, it's a uniform, if you will. Uh, you know, as I brought up earlier, you know, there's the who and the mods, you know, uh, and that was a, a look so that the audience could identify itself. And then the, the it's really the band members uh, weren't the ones that were inventing this. They were stealing it from the audience. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, this is the way things go. Uh, and, uh, uh, I, I just I just don't see pointing the finger at uh, a fashion statement as being the reason for uh, the demise. I, I think you're on to something more that, look, uh, this is part of the Internet culture. I think uh, 
uh, the demise of MySpace probably had more to do with it than, uh, you know, somebody's chopped bangs uh, and guyliner um, and um, uh, and that the, the music industry itself was going through uh, potentially death throes uh, at the time that this music rose to prominence. And, you know, those two things, you know, were were difficult to navigate uh, for any a genre uh, uh, that uh, would have existed, including somebody like the Beatles. So, um, you know, it just it ran its course and it just ran its course a little bit quicker. And also, you know, as we as we said, you know, it's been 15 years since, uh, you know, a guitar driven rock band has had a, a number one album. And maybe, you know, maybe that instrumentation and, and that, you know, that sort of uh, of setup, uh, you know, has run its course. Um, but, um, you know, I spent a lot of time digging into rock and roll history and I've noticed a big difference between American and English rock and roll artists. And, uh, it's something I brought up a little bit earlier, but I want to explore a little bit deeper and that it's Americans so desperately want to retain utter authenticity while the Englishman understands that they are entertainers first. I think Americans sometimes get hung up on this and, and therefore they pigeonhole themselves and can't grow as artists. It seems to me the emo bands took this this very seriously and therefore kind of box themselves in. Is, is that a fair assessment? I think in some ways, yes. Um, there was a huge focus on remaining authentic, um, as always is the problem in anything related to punk rock. Um, you worry about selling out. Yeah. Um, but that can mean a number of different things for some people selling out simply means you got popular. And <laughs> I, I think that's just a total waste of time to think about. But, um, you know, in my opinion, selling out doesn't matter, you know, how many record sales you have, how many people are coming to your shows. It's a matter of whether you can keep the sincerity behind the music while you're, while you're advancing ahead. And, um, you know, some people could, some people couldn't. Yeah. Uh, unlike other monikers of rock and roll genres, it seems like the players themselves never felt comfortable in their skins or, or maybe they kind of felt like they aged out. I think aging out might be the more, uh, likely. Yeah. 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 All right. So now in 2019, like all things, the cyclical, and there seems to be this resurgence for the emo scene. Uh, there's things like uh, uh, emo night that uh, you can find in most major cities. I think there's even a tour that uh, that goes around. And like we said at the beginning, My Chemical Romance is coming back. Um, you know, it's like. I, I guess I'll, what I want to say is that overall, taken as a whole, um, there's this good songwriting. And as long as there's good songwriting, that is the thing that re remains permanent. You'll never get rid of that. Uh, the, the, the fashion, the, the, uh, you know, the, the, the goofiness that might appear, that all kind of goes away and you're left with the songs and those are forever. Right. Definitely. And, um, Nobody can take that personal experience away from you of relating to that song. You'll always remember the first time you heard a My Chemical Romance song. You'll always remember the first time you heard 
a Taking Back Sunday song or any one of those bands, any underground band that I haven't named that deserves to be named, you'll always remember them. And hopefully it'll remain part of you as more than just a bit of nostalgia. Yeah, you know, music is the language of the universe. And, uh, you know, each generation just has its own spin on that language and uh, they retain that for the rest of their lives mm -hmm. well what is uh next for you taylor <laughs> um the next thing for me is just to get more people to listen and listen closely um you know i i would love to get this book into the hands of as many people as possible because i think the the genre is worthwhile and I think that even if you weren't a fan of it coming in, um, you'll find it pretty fascinating regardless. Well, I think you did a good job of, uh, you know, exposing this as something more than, uh, you know, this blip in rock and roll history, uh, that there's far more depth to it than uh, one might uh, first think, that uh, it actually brings a lot of interesting uh, introspective and emotionally deep uh, lyrical content to it uh, and uh, you know uh, uh, a music that that expresses itself um, as equally uh, to to the words and I and I think um, I think that's the takeaway that I, I get from the book well I'm glad you can take that away and I'm glad that you enjoyed it it really means a lot well, Taylor Markarian, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock today. Thank you for taking the time to talk about From the Basement. Thank you for the education, Taylor Markarian. As I said in the intro, I had only a passing acquaintance with the emo scene, um, but I, I did get a chance to see uh, the Black Parade Tour, uh, Mike Kem's big uh, arena uh, touring uh, year. Um, but that was that was my experience in uh, in, in most of uh, the emo music. So uh, I really enjoyed talking with her. I uncovered something new. Well, new to me anyway, during our deeper dig today. When this podcast began five years ago, we defined the rock and roll era as mid-50s to mid-90s and suggested that the last great genre was grunge. And you know what? I'm rethinking that. Now it seems to me like the story does continue, at least into the first decade of this new millennium. I do know this for sure. I now have a much better understanding and appreciation of emo rock. 
Once again, the author is Taylor Markarian, and the book is called From the Basement, The History of Emo Music and How It Changed Society. I'm Christian Swain, and this has been Deeper Digs in Rock. But real quick before I go, I I also want to give a quick shout-out to my niece, Sydney Ann, for helping me out with some of these bands that are name-checked throughout the book, Uh, just so I would get a thorough education. I think Sydney and Taylor would be fast friends and end up in the mosh pit together at any emo concert. Thanks again, of course, to Taylor Markarian for stopping by, and thank you for listening. And as always, keep up the rockin'. Your lipstick is calling up by the angel. I know exactly what goes on. Deeper Digs in Rock, produced and hosted by Christian Swain. All sound design and incidental music by Busy Signal Studios. Find all of our shows, notes, social, and links at www.pantheonpodcast.com or wherever you listen to great podcasts. All songs can be found for purchase on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. Please purchase these great and important tracks. Find us on Facebook at the RNRAP. We are on Instagram at RNR Archaeology. Tweet us at RNR Archaeology. Today is your lucky day. You could redeem sweeps coins for a $50,000 cash prize at Chumba Casino. Join over 1 million players at Chumba Casino, America's favorite online social casino. It's your turn. Play for free at ChumbaCasino.com. That's C-H-U-M-B-A Casino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.